Okay, so I titled this presentation, The Life of the Flesh is in the Plant Sap. Now, that may sound familiar to some of you guys. You may remember in Leviticus uh, chapter 11, the statement, The life of the flesh is in the blood. And when we begin to study that, we also look at the spirit of prophecy, and we see a number of different statements concerning to uh, uh, the life of the flesh in, in uh, or I'm sorry, the life of uh, or our blood in our systems and the importance of having healthy blood to have a good health. So I'm going to start off, like I said, talking about a lot of science. And sometimes uh, folks get a little resistance to that, so I wanted to really share with you what Sister White says concerning science and agriculture. Uh, there's a lot of things out there, a lot of buzzwords. Uh, people say things all the time that a lot of times they don't understand. So trying to decipher the real from the fake requires not just science, but it requires unperverted science. So some of the statements that she makes are, um, again, here in... Uh, Health Food Ministries, page 39, it says, I have been shown that study and agricultural line should be the A, Bs, and Cs of the educational work in our schools. We've, I think most people are familiar with that quote. Education, uh, page 111, says, Not one can, uh, No one can succeed in agriculture or gardening without uh, attention to the laws involved, and compliance with the laws governing each is a condition of success. These laws are, again, takes you back to sciences, uh, to the sciences. These are laws that God had put in, in place from uh, creation. And... Uh, Signs of the Times, August 13, 1896. Agriculture should be advanced by scientific knowledge. This is 1896. Many say we have tried agriculture and know what, is, what its results are, and yet these very ones need to know how to cultivate the soil and to bring science into their work. When it comes to Evandale and Madison College, it says the school, uh, making, uh, speaking on the, particularly Evandale College, she says, the school that is started here in Korenbong, we, uh, we look to see real success in agricultural lines, combined with the study of the sciences. She makes it pretty clear over and over again, this was uh, Advocate March 1st, 1901, paragraph 8, that science needs to be brought into agriculture. We're not to go into this blindly. And if we can bring it in and we can bring in a true, unperverted science, that we will have success. It is my goal this morning to share with you some of that science. Again, Leviticus chapter 11, page uh, 17, it says the, uh, the life of the flesh is in the blood. The principle here is that the life of flesh is the current, the blood in us. And when, if we look at the plant and we, we start thinking about the life of the plant, the life is going to be in the blood. But what is the blood of plants? It is the sap. And then if the sap is the blood of plants, uh, what is the vascular system of plants? They're like veins and arteries, but they're called the xylem and the phloem. I'll show you some pictures, and I'll share some more with that. The order, um, in order to have good health, she makes a statement, we must have good blood. This is uh, Ministry of Healing, page 271. Uh, biblical power of herbs. To you I have given these, Genesis 129. We're told that these are given to us to heal us. In Revelations, we're told that the, life, the, the, uh, uh, the uh, leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. These things are supposed to be healing us. And if they're not properly grown, they're not going to have the effect that God had designed them to have on us. So, with this morning, what i like to do is start with the transpiration system. Because the transpiration system is essentially the vascular system of a plant. It, this is how nutrients move through the plant, but also get into the plant. I remember when I first started farming, and I started growing and gardening... I stared at a plant, I think it was a weed, I want to say it was pigweed, and I sat there and I looked at it and I remember thinking to myself, God, I have no idea how this thing works. <laughs> I was completely, 
know, at this point in my life, I had studied uh, electrical engineering, I had studied mechanics, I'd studied many complicated things, but when I looked at God's creation, I just drew a blank. I had no idea, no clue how that thing worked. I said, how do you get nutrients out of the soil into this thing so that it will grow and, and, and become something? And um, that's what I, I, I like to teach that to you this morning if you don't know that. And uh, it's my understanding that the majority of the population, and I don't have a statistic, but it's just a statement that is regularly made, the majority of the population has no idea where the food comes from. Something like over 90%, I've heard. And when we start to look at how is it grown or what the sciences of it are, even a, a, a percentage even smaller than that knows what it is. And most farmers, uh, I think right now, something like 50% of the farmers in the United States do not have any type of education in the sciences. It doesn't mean that they don't know what they're doing. It just means that they don't understand the science of plants. So this morning, we're going to talk about transpiration. And what you see in this image here is a picture of a leaf with moisture on it. And transpiration is essentially the movement of, of water from the soil solution through the vascular system of the plant and leaving the leaves. So when we look at this uh, image that I have here, water, water in the soil, once it's in the soil, it's not necessarily referred to scientifically as water, but they call it a soil solution. And what that means is it's, it's moisture, it's water, but in it, it has a lot of dissolved ions. It has, uh, it has different uh, exudates from bi biological organisms that are in the soil. It's not exactly just pure water. And how those nutrients come into the plant, part of it is through um, pressure potential, which is governed by the guard cells. These are cells that are in the leaves of the plants. These cells... Uh, control the stomatas, and this is essentially like breathing in the plant. These cells will open and close based upon, can you guys see on this side, am I blocking your view? Okay. Uh, based off of uh, the turgid pressure inside these cells, it'll regulate transpiration, the movement of moisture through the leaves. And when the plant, and when the plants are also uh, exchanging gases, so this is how oxygen leaves a plant and CO2 enters a plant. One of the most important things to understand, though, is that this, these guard cells, they only govern the xylem. They don't govern the phloem. And this is important to understand because when we start looking at different nutrients, I know that a lot of you have already been to Whitmar's classes and, you've, and uh, Gregory's classes, and you've, they talk a lot about soil balancing and nutrients, et cetera. And the reason why those laws, and well, they don't really share with you laws, but they give you an understanding in, of how you should balance your soil and what nutrients should be in there and what quantities. The reason why you have these is because there are certain regulators that govern what's going to enter a plant and what's not going to enter that plant. So we have to understand, if we're going to understand soil biology, the first thing you need to understand is the biology of the roots and of the plants because the root system is part of the biggest bio biological system in the soil. Uh, it's not the biggest. The biggest is actually fun fungus, fungi. It's, um, it's can, I don't remember the exact statistic, but I know that it is, in some places, as much as 90% of the biological life inside the soil. And this is usually in a, in a, a jungle forest in, in the Amazon and other places where fungus is absolutely necessary. I'll talk more about fungus later. But... Uh, we go to the next slide here. We start looking at a cutaway of the vascular system of the plant. On the top right, you see this is a cutaway of a leaf tissue, and you can see how it comes out of the leaf. And what you're looking at is in the lower portion is the, uh, is the phloem, and the upper portion is the xylem. Now, the phloem is the way that nutrients move from what they would call source to sink or sink to source, depending on which direction it's going. Sometimes in the fall, when the leaves fall off the tree, that your nutrients are leaving the trees and they're going to the root system. Is how, is how the plants uh, go into dormancy. 
And the reason why, uh, and the method that they use to do this is by moving nutrients into the phloem. But there are some nutrients that do not move in the plant, like phosphorus or calcium. Once they come in, they're fixed. They don't move. So understanding which nutrients move and which nutrients don't move gives you an understanding of deficiencies in, that you may see in your crop. So if you're looking at your crop and older leaves are dying, maybe they're looking chlorotic or some other symptom, and the growth up on top is green, you understand that nutrients are moving from the lower leaves to the upper leaves, and, which are the younger leaves. And if you know which nutrients are mobile, it really helps you to understand where your deficiencies might be in your soil. Uh, these are, again, cutaway pictures of what this looks like. Um, you see dicot stems. Uh, some of them are monocots. Some species are dicots. There's a lot of variety in how, this, how these things are in plants. I won't really get into it, but if you want more information about that, you certainly can find it online. There's an awful lot of information in biological, even high school or 100-level, uh, 200-level bio biology books that you can find at a library or get online for a couple of bucks. Uh, now, we're, we're moving down here, we're moving through the root system. We started from the leaf, we saw the vascular system going down the, the trees, now we're down to the root. When we get down to the root uh, here, we start looking at the actual root hairs, and the root hairs are actually epidermal cells. And they extend out, like you see in the image here at the bottom left. And you have different w pathways that uh, different nutrients take. And uh, one of the ones that I really like to bring up is calcium, because calcium I like, I liken, personally, I liken calcium to Christ. It is what we should have the most of in the soil, and yet it is the hardest to get into the plant. Christ is what we should have the most of, yet it's the hardest to get Christ into our, in, into our lives. And this is when we start looking at the characteristics of Jesus Christ and calcium in the soil, I find a lot of things that are very similar. Um, but with apoplastic flow is one of the methods, symplastic flow is another one, and then diffusion is a third method. In apoplastic flow, I'll, I'll discuss it here in a minute, but you can see in the image on the screen how it goes through the exterior of the cells. It never really enters the interior, and calcium will come into the, uh, ex uh, into the exterior of the cells, go through the membranes, eventually making its way to the xylem and working up through the uh, vascular system. In the phloem, you don't hardly ever see calcium because calcium is not mobile. Calcium will come in and it'll make bonds with cells from this cell to this cell. And I'll show, I'll show slides later on, but what these bonds do is that they, they bond the cells together and it makes it difficult for fungal pathogens to come in and break those bonds. It's very important to understand the role of calcium in plant pathology. Other nutrients like potassium will come in through uh, some plastic route, which uses proteins in the cell membranes to come into the roots. And there is no way for a plant to govern how much potassium will enter into the cells. We don't have a way to... Uh, to govern how much potassium enters our cells. That's why potassium chloride is used for lethal injections. If you put enough of it inside of a bi biological system, it'll kill you. And it's the same with plants. If we put enough potassium or too much potassium, we tend to block other nutrients, particularly calcium, uh, as well as sodium, you'll knock it out. So it's really, really important to understand that that nutrient should be managed very carefully. This is a cutaway image of what a plant cell would look like. Uh, this would be, of course, the leaf. You see uh, you have uh, mitochondria, you have chloroplast. The chloroplast is where the photosynthesis happens. Mitochondria is where sugars are actually metabolized, broken down to form ATP energy to do a lot of different processes in a plant. Um, the, the plasma desmata is where you see that your symplastic flow where nutrients can move through. In between the plant cells through here would be your apoplastic flow. And again, this is essentially the vascular system. If you wanted to compare it to human health, it would be like the capillary veins. 
very small, usually just big enough to move maybe a, about as wide, wide enough as perhaps a, a couple of elements of a, any given nutrient like calcium or potassium, magnesium, et cetera. And there's a lot of proteins that are on the exterior of these cells that work to bring in nutrients and to push nutrients out. And the interesting thing is when you start to study what, how these nutrients move and, and come in, you start to see, uh, you start, numbers start coming into your head that you've probably heard before. Ratios of certain nutrients start coming in in order to manage these proteins. You have the nucleus, and the nucleus is where you find the DNA. That DNA is, is the code given by God as to what that organism should be. Are you going to be an orange? Are you going to be a carrot? Are you going to be a weed, a blade of grass? That's all in the nucleus. And if you have the right nutrients in a plant, the, that genetic code can, ex can express itself. But if you have deficiencies of certain uh, proteins or enzymes, that genetic code cannot express itself. And it's at that point where disease comes in. And sometimes we look for genetic resistance in different species, and what they're really looking to do is bring in genes that can actually activate certain processes. So when we start looking at genetic resistance and how we're changing genes in, into different plant species through GMOs and other processes, it's all in the ge genetic code and regulating and shutting off certain things, especially in RNA silencing, which is a new technology coming out for how to fight dif different pathogens. You can go in and you can take a whole section of the genetic code and shut it off. And where that happens is right here inside the plant cells. And it's really interesting how some of these processes work. Now we're looking at some of the proteins. What I like, this cutaway picture, again, you see passive transport and active transport. Active transport means that it requires energy. That's what ATP is, amino triphosphate and amino diphosphate. That's energy. So the plant means that the plant has to use uh, photosynthates which is energy, to bring nutrients in or push nutrients out or do whatever it may be doing by regulating that process. Now you have diffusion, which means that nutrients like oxygen or uh, water can just simply come right through the, the uh, phospholipid bilayer, which is your, your cell membrane, right, in, right into the cell, right into your, uh, your cell membrane. And then at that point, it's where the organelles inside the cell can start doing different things. Now, if you get to higher concentrations, you might have different proteins that will push nutrients out. But, and these, these pictures you see here in the center inside the, mel, the, the cell membrane are essentially proteins. Facilitated diffusion, you'd have certain things like potassium that'll come straight through with no regulation whatsoever. Potassium works in this way, and I'll show you pictures later. This is why potassium will enter a plant without any regulation whatsoever. And the only way to push it out is with sodium. Sodium is the only thing that can push potassium out because it works in similar methods. But then you have uh, different types of active transports that require certain types of enzymes to regulate those proteins to bring that nutrient or those sugars or whatever it may be, molecules. There's a lot of different types of proteins that will work this way. This is the same way sugar enters our cells and uh, um, regulates different processes. But let's see, our next picture here. Okay, here's the next picture I was talking about. We have an ATP pump. This is how hydrogen moves from one cell to the other. It's very important to understand how the ATP pump works, how the uh, sodium potassium pump works by moving uh, three elements of potassium out and bringing five elements of sodium in, if I got that number right. So when we start looking at the sodium potassium pump and how that moves hydrogen ions outside of the cell, you see, again, a ratio, usually around two parts potassium to one part sodium. And that's very similar to what you've been hearing 
should be in the soil. When you have these same ratios in the soil of sodium and potassium, the importance is that you're moving the sodium, that the sodium potassium pump is working at its most efficient level in your plant species so that you can move hydrogen ions out. Moving hydrogen ions out of the cells puts hydrogen ions into the soil, which will make nutrients available to you by increasing pH. I'm sorry? Two parts hydrogen, uh, well, normally what it is is roughly two parts potassium to one part sodium to move your sodium potassium pump in your cell plants. And this, again, goes back to similar, these numbers, this, all of a sudden they just start clicking because you've, you've heard these numbers before from other farmers and other growers who say, well, if I keep these nutrient levels at these types of balances, it works. And people don't understand why, but I'm just sharing with you the science to why some of this works. Um, a lot of people like the product C90. Is anybody familiar with that product? I think a lot of people are familiar with that product. It's just sea salt. But it has, you know, they, they sell it because it has a lot of trace minerals. And a lot of people swear by C90. But what they don't understand is that they have no sodium in their soil. And the improvement that they're seeing is the addition of sodium. That's the biggest improvement when you have no sodium. And if you live in an area with more precipitation than 30 inches annual precipitation, then uh, you, you probably don't have any sodium in your soil. It washes out. I'll exp I can explain a little bit later. I don't know if I got the slide in there, but sodium uh, has the weakest affinity to the soil colloid, which means it's the first mineral to leave, the first cation to leave. So if you live in a high rainfall environment, especially in tropical regions, I can guarantee you, you don't have enough sodium unless you've been adding it. Um, hydrogen ions are pumped out with sodium potassium pump, and those hydrogen ions oftentimes bring different nutrients or different cations into the cell. There's a lot of cations out there, calcium, magnesium, potassium, uh, well, copper, zinc, et cetera, et cetera. All of those require something to bring it into the plant. It doesn't come in by itself except for potassium and sodium. So most every other cation requires some type of, uh, some type of uh, protein to bring it in, and, that, and it usually comes in with hydrogen. So hydrogen needs to be leaving with it. Here's another image of uh, uh, root hairs in a soil. And what you're looking at is exchanges on how root hairs will actually uh, sh uh, remove uh, carbonic acid, excrete carbonic acid. And you have uh, soil particles like humus or clay colloids, and they have different nutrients. I think we've talked a lot about cation exchange capacity. Some of you guys know what that means. Uh, that soil particle is essentially a particle with exchange capacity, which means it has a negative charge, which means it holds cations, which means it's something that's positively charged. Uh, this is how nutrients are exchanged from the root hair to soil colloids or humus. Now, transpiration, the vascular system, is governed by moisture potential, water potential, or soil potential. You can get soil probes to see your, check your, your moisture level or your, or your pressure potential, but essentially you need a uh, there's a certain forces of water with soil particles that are called the forces of adhesion and cohesion that hold water to these particles. When the soil is stressed or dried out, desiccated, and you don't have enough moisture in there, what happens is, is that you don't, you're not able to, the plant is not able to put enough vacuum or enough sucking force to pull that moisture out. This is what is referred to as your wilting point in your soil. This is the point where, you, where your plants will wilt because it cannot move whatever moisture is in there out of there. It doesn't mean you don't have any. There will always be moisture in there. You have to heat soil to the temperature of 500 degrees Celsius to remove all the moisture. So you'll never see that in your, in your farm or, or, or your garden or anywhere you grow, no matter 
you know, if your plants fail or if your fans fail, you'll never get all the moisture out of the soil, but you'll get enough of it out to where your plants can no longer uh, utilize that moisture in there. And the, and the forces that are used um, are usually me measured in pascals, megapascals. And you can see right here, there's all these numbers for uh, how much, I, I won't really get into all the numbers, but uh, th those are the actual scientific numbers for how it moves. But if you look, mo more importantly, if you look at the images, it shows you how uh, moisture will come in through the root hairs, will go into the uh, xylem. Moisture only usually moves through the xylem. So if your greenhouse is getting too uh, humid, uh, it's probably because you're transpiring so much and the plants are moving that moisture out of the soil profile, through the plants, bringing nutrients into the plant, coming out of the leaves, exchanging gases, and increasing the, 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 uh, the humidity level inside your greenhouse. If you're growing in greenhouses and you ma manage greenhouses, humidity is something that you really got to be careful and watch out for because once you reach a certain percentage of humidity inside that greenhouse, transpiration shuts down. Why? Because your pressure potentials are no longer, there's no longer a difference, a sufficient difference to move those nutrients. So it's a, that's the point where you need to start bringing in fans and you need to start bringing in other, other methods to manage that humidity. Otherwise, you're not going to get the, uh, the, the transpiration you're, you're seeking and you're not going to get those nutrients into the plant and you start to stress the plant and certain uh, uh, diseases like blossom end rot will come in. Why blossom end rot so particularly? Because you're not moving that calcium. Remember, it's the only way calcium comes in the plant is through the xylem. If you've got too much humidity in your greenhouse and you, and you can't transpire, even though the stomata cells may be open like I showed you earlier, but you're not transpiring because of the different uh, pressure potentials in the air above ground and the, air and the moisture below ground, you're not going to move nutrients like calcium through the plant. If the calcium is not in the plant at the right ratios at the right time during the flowering stages, you end up getting blossom end rot. You have to have the right levels of nutrients in there, and this is where it gets kind of tricky and where folks start to get real frustrated as to why am I getting blossom end rot or why do these different, nutrient, uh, different uh, diseases come up when I have the right nutrients in the ground, I've put enough calcium, I've, done, I've applied enough lime, et cetera, et cetera, and, I would, uh, uh, and, and I'm not able to uh, accomplish these things. But again, it's really important to understand the science behind the biology, the science behind God's creation. And there's a lot of information out there. I can't share it all with you this morning as much as I'd love to. This is an image of uh, nutrients from the soil. I wanted to share this with you guys because a lot of times there's a lot of mystery behind what exactly is cation exchange capacity, what, what is this humus, what is this hummus, these are just, these are, or not hummus, I'm sorry, humus and colloids. And you have, um, this is just a picture of colloids now. The, the humus part is really complicated. You're not going to find online any particular image for humus because all humus is is broken down plant matter. Essentially, the plants will, will uh, begin to break down different uh, uh, organic, like plant tissues, etc. They get broken down to a certain point where there's no nutrient left in them. When you look at your organic matter in the soil, you have three different categories. One is your active, one is your passive, and one is your stable. All, each one of those constitutes your organic matter. Your active organic matter is going to be the organic matter that is biologically active. That's why it's called active. Uh, and then there's some, sometimes they call it intermediate or semi-intermediate. There's a lot of different terms for the intermediate portion of it, but that's usually the portion of your organic matter that only has a small, uh, small amounts of nutrients in it. There's not quite as much biological activity. It takes certain organisms in order, uh, in order to break down what is there. Uh, it's not quite as uh, active. In other words, it doesn't have as much biological processes going on. That's why it's referred to as semi-active or 
medium active or some term around, the, uh, around, like, around those uh, definitions. Uh, then you have your stable organic matter. And your stable organic matter is the organic matter that has been stripped of most everything. There's no longer biological activity. Nothing is metabolizing it. There's only maybe just a handful of species out there that can actually do anything with that uh, organic matter. And that is the organic matter that develops uh, cation exchange capacity as well as some anion exchange capacity, but it's not much. Uh, those are the nutrients you see there. With clay colloids, it's actually something that formed through well, there's, if you listen to the literature, they're going to tell you it was millions of years and it was blah, blah, blah. But I personally, I don't believe that the Earth, that the earth is millions of years old. I believe that God created it in six literal days. And I think that we're, we're somewhere around 6,000 years. But they try to understand it using weathering, using the science of today and the moisture of today. So when you hear terms like these rocks are 10 million years old, that doesn't really mean calendar years. It's kind of like light years. If I told you, you know, light years, you understand that that doesn't really mean it's not a unit of, of necessarily of time. It's a unit of measuring distance. Uh, measuring time in soil weathering is not really a unit of actual clock time. It's a, a guess as to how much weathering has passed over a certain period of time. And they'd like to suggest that it was whatever millions of years it has been, but really what they're trying to do is say, with today's weathering processes, with the kind of rainfall that we see today, and the amount of acid that gets put into the soil through rain, you expect certain amount of weathering and certain amount of calendar years. So it's really, you know, you gotta take that stuff with a real serious grain of salt, even if you do believe in evolution and all these other different things. You can't expect it that way, or you can't expect to interpret it that way. Um, Next, I'm going to get, after this, I want to get into nutrient cycling. This is supposed to be an advanced soil biology class. Some of you guys were not here when, when I first got started, but when I was first asked to make this presentation, I was asked to do it as an advanced soil biology class. So I'm going to talk, I, I, I put it together that way. Once I got here, I saw that it was supposed to be intermediate level. So for those of you, I give you that disclaimer now. But we're going to get into nutrient cycling here when we get into the, the uh, second hour and the... Um, and going forward. And what we need to really find out is how do nutrients cycle in the soil? Uh, this is supposed to be mostly soil. I wanted to give you guys a basic run through of the plant. I think that most of you guys have got a similar understanding how these nutrients move from the soil into the plant and, and from the plant throughout the different plant parts and ultimately into the fruit. Um, I didn't show you any images of the fruit, but the fruit uh, is also associated with that vascular system. It will get its nutrients from there. It is important that it, uh, you consider those things as well. Uh, but there's not an awful lot of change. This presentation, um, I managed to finish it a lot, a lot uh, sooner than I, I thought. So what I'm going to do, I have some that are pretty heavy, so I'm going to go ahead and start on the second hour. It's worth the presentation. I thought it would take me a little bit longer to get through that first one, but I, perhaps I should have added a few more slides. It's 9.45. We still got 10 minutes, so I'll keep going. Uh, so I wanted to get into the soil. The next, the next hour was supposed to be soil, the plant stomach. Now, why the plant stomach? This is interesting. Remember, we were talking about the biology of plants, and we looked at the root system, and we looked at the vascular system, but when we look at plants, we notice that they don't have a stomach, they don't have a large intestine, they don't have a small intestine, they don't have a you know, colon, they don't have all these other intestinal things, but how did God design uh, the, the uh, digestive system for plants? And it's really interesting. Because essentially, the, the plant stomach is the soil. 
Now, if we think about our own digestive system, we can excrete as animals, or, or well, we're, I don't consider myself an animal, but they classify us in the biological community as animals. But either way, we can excrete certain uh, acids and a few enzymes and things into our uh, small and large intestines and, and, and try to break down things. But really, the majority of the, of the digestion, digestion in our uh, small and large intestine is through microorganisms, bacteria, particularly. This bacteria is capable of of uh, excreting different acids, different enzymes to break down uh, different biological organ, uh, processes and carbons and uh, taking nutrients that otherwise would not be available to us and making them available to us so that we can digest our food. Our, our, our human digestive system as well as, as well as the digestive system of various animals is very much dependent on the bacteria that is in our, in our digestive organs. It's not that different for the soil. But, just, but the interesting thing to know, in the, science, in the medical community, you don't get a lot of talk about what, how your diet affects the microorganisms uh, in, your, in, your, in your gut. But I, will, uh, I, I can't give you every single name. In fact, the scientific community right now, whoa, what happened? I'm sorry. This got... The scientific community right now, um, for soil or for biology or I'm sorry bacteria and fungus there's so many organisms out there the number they don't even know the number it's in the trillions and trillions of different organisms and because it's so diverse what they do is that they have decided to stop naming it the way that they normally name it so they're not calling them just bacillus this or you know, Azotobacter, that, or et cetera, and giving it all these different genuses and, and, and families. What they have decided to do for soil science is get away from that whole naming that the rest of the biologi uh, bio uh, uh, soil bio or, I'm sorry, uh, biology science discipline uses and go to simply just uh, 16S RNA sequencing, which is taking a certain portion of the DNA code for bacteria and naming them based off of the, the deviations in the genetic code of bacteria, and then the same thing with fungus, except they use the 18S DNA sequence for fungus and the 16S DNA sequence for bacteria. It's so complex, it's so diverse, that they themselves don't even know how to name it. That's how crazy it is. That we as, man, as men, we, mankind, even are the smartest people out there working on this thing have no idea what to call these organisms. So they just got away from the, 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 stereo, the stereotypical method of doing things. So when you start looking at uh, genetic diversity, so now everything is about genetic diversity and not trying to identify one particular species or a different particular species. And when we look at the uh, genetic diversity of, that's still not up yet, huh? Well, oh, I'm in the wrong one. Uh, I'm sorry. This is messing me up here. So when we start looking at the, uh, the genes, what we're doing now is we start comparing the genetic diversity of bacteria that we find in any particular soil. And then we start thinking of the conditions that the soil needs to be in order to see these deviations in, in, in uh, genetic diversity. And what, we're dis and what they have discovered simply is that there is a significant amount of, of change in, in uh, or I'm sorry, there's, in the percentages of certain uh, genes based off soil conditions. So, uh, an example is, <clears throat> when we look at soils that are confined feedlots, 
and we start looking at the percentage of the bacteria that you find in there that are fall under the category as acidophiles, which means that they like they survive in high acid environments, which is what our digestive system, right? Our digestive system is a high acid environment. Most of our organisms here should be acidophiles. So when they look at that, what they discover is that the soil has huge percentages of uh, acidifiers. If you go to the forest, you find that you a lot more fungus there. And, you, and if you go to a, uh, agricultural fields, you find less fungus, uh, less bacteria, but then you find some other species that are not so favorable. So what, we start, what they start noticing is that really, it's all about what you're doing with the soil. If you want to know what percentage of bacteria or uh, genetics are in your soil, you have to start looking at land use management. What are you doing with that, that particular piece of land? So when we start to consider um, management and applying certain uh, inoculants that you find, you really need to consider uh, what, what are you putting down and, and you know, are you really going to make adjustments in that soil based off the inoculant or is the environment in that soil so different that no matter what you inoculate it with, you're just going to kill them all. And I'll give you an example that is not microscopic. I'll say, okay, we as human beings, you know, what is it, 65, 68, whatever in this room, Imagine you cook all of us, just like we are right now. Basic coats, basic sweaters, and you dumped all of us in Antarctica. How, many, how long would we survive? <laughs> we wouldn't survive very long, would we? So it's the same idea with inoculants. If you do not change the, 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 uh, the environment in that soil, and you go out and you spend all this money in inoculants and you dump them in there, what's going to happen? You're just going to kill them all. <laughs> it's all that ever happens. So you get, you get on these websites and they make real big promises and when you buy these things and you put them in, oftentimes it doesn't work. Why? You gotta change the environment. Well, wh what do you do? Well, this class is not gonna necessarily discuss on what to do. I think that other people here have already discussed quite heavily on what to do to change the environment in that soil. Uh, but essentially, you gotta get the chemistry balanced. When you get the chemistry in your soil right, your biology will follow. Because when you get the chemistry right, you get the environment right. And when you get the environment right, the bacterial organisms that thrive in that environment will thrive. And the ones that don't thrive will not thrive. They'll die off and there'll be less of them there. But that would be my suggestion to do that. Now, we're going to get into the soil food web. Now, when we start to speaking on phosphorus, I'll talk about a little bit about the other anion exchange capacity. And what I mean by that is we hear a lot about cation exchange capacity. It's been talked a lot at these conferences. I'm going to talk a little bit about anion exchange capacity and what William Albright considered to be anion exchange capacity. Uh, and that essentially is the soil food web. Now, what is that, the soil food web? Has anybody ever heard of that term before? Oh, okay, great. <laughs> I was scared there was going to be no hands. <laughs> I got maybe half a dozen hands, that's great. So the soil food web is essentially the cycling of, of, of carbon through the soil. What does that mean? Anything that ever used to be alive, anything, including us. We all go to the dirt, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, is what the Bible says. From the soil we came to the soil we shall return was a curse that God gave to Adam, subsequently to each and every one of us. It is no different for every single piece of biological life on here. It's all going to eventually die. But at some point it was all alive. So when that, when that when all of this, this looks at from the small animal bird being up, up there pretty high at trophic level, all the way down to your bacteria, your protozoa, and your fungi, and, 
and how exactly these nutrients move. When we get back in uh, the next hour, I'm going to talk about the soil food web and uh, a few of the other nutrients that we're going to take off from there. Thank you. Okay. All right. I think that's good for the recording. Okay. I can answer a couple questions if you want to shoot them at me. We've got a 15-minute break. Um, could you introduce yourself? Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I skipped that part. <laughs> or maybe I didn't the announcements. Yes. So my name is Michael. Uh, well, okay. First, I'll say a lot, of a lot of you guys know me as Michael Tyler, but I, um, the Bible says, Honor thy father and thy mother. And I decided to honor my father's by changing my name to my father's name. So my name is Michael Treviso. And my brother did the same and my sister did the same. All my father's children decided to change their name. So I'm Michael Treviso. Michael, it's not up there. Rocky Treviso, there you go. Michael Rocky Treviso. Um, I, uh, I work for, right now I work for five college farms. I just took over management of that facility. I haven't been there very long. I helped them on and off from the very beginning. Um, I'm a graduate of Oregon State University. I studied a, a crop and soil science. Um, are you guys having trouble hearing me in the back? I am. Okay. I'll have show a little, a little bit of mercy there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Is that working? Is that better? Yeah. All right. That's a lot better. Okay, so where was I? Yeah, so I did graduate from uh, Oregon State University, etc. Uh, been farming for about five or six years. I originally, uh, I originate from Tucson, Arizona. I uh, was in the military. I did electrical engineering, and the Lord told me one day enough, and I abandoned all that, and then I started farming. Um, it's been a wild ride, I'll tell you that. It's not going to be easy if you want to do it. I could, I could share a testimony, but it'd take forever. <laughs> so that's essentially in a nutshell who I am. Um, uh, we could share, I can share more about myself later, but I'd like to ans answer some questions. I saw a number of hands. I think the uh, lady in the back was the first one, actually. I'm sorry. So my, my handouts are all on the uh, ag, uh, what is it, uh, ad agra? Or? Adventist ag. org. Yeah, if you go there and you go down to Michael Rocky or Michael Treviso, something like that, uh, there's a Google Drive link. And on that Google Drive, I have all my PowerPoints, but I also have a lot of supplemental reading. I would encourage any of you that are serious about learning biology of soils to read what I posted there, because there's an awful lot to understand. It's a good primer, a good place to start. Okay, next question. Mine is, I have three-function Yeah, it's, it would be because of transpiration by what plants you got inside of there. And what you need to do when you get to that point is, unfortunately, you got to let some cold air in and let some of that humid air out. Um, it, you normally, you don't experience this because you normally don't keep a greenhouse that tight except for this time of year where it's real cold. And if you're outdoors, well, you never do that. You know, the wind just keeps blowing. That's unfortunate. The only unfortunate downside of greenhouse growing is, is getting the humidity too high. Uh, okay, well, depends on what you're growing. I guess yeah, that's the answer nobody wants to hear. Depends. <laughs> but depends on what you're growing because uh, what you got to start worrying about is pathogens. Uh, a lot of your fungal pathogens, especially like powdery mildew, really like uh, humidity. So those fungal spores are going to take off on you when the humidity gets high. 
If you got uh, pretty healthy plants, you'll probably be okay. You could probably fight powdery mildew. And if you, you know, put some kind of, I don't know if you want to do sprays, it depends on who you are and what you're growing and how much you care. But uh, humidity really uh, should be kept less than 80%. Uh, if you get over 80%, you start to really slow down your transpiration. Uh, nutrients won't enter the plant as quickly, particularly the, the nutrients that are dependent on uh, transpiration to enter the plant, like calcium, uh, will not enter as easily. Uh, as they would if you were transpiring like you like they normally would. So and as a follow-up, what would you consider to be ideal? Kind of ideal? ideal, about 40%. 40%. Yeah. <coughs> Go ahead. Would you recommend introducing biology if you have the chemistry right? Or Absolutely. Would it come no, go ahead. Uh, but uh, I don't have the PowerPoints. I, don't, I have the pictures on my computer somewhere. I won't pull them up. But... Anyway, uh, when they started going around testing, they tested soils all over the world. And what they found is that they found the genetics, the same genetics everywhere. The only thing that was different was the percentage of those genetics. So it's pretty likely that you got whatever you want in the soil. It's just that you don't have it in the quantity you want it. To get it there, first you've got to change the environment, right? And then with time, that'll change. But if you want to help it change you know, or somehow accelerate that process, you can introduce uh, inoculants. Any other questions? Christine? I just said, when you make cover, but if you have a soil and there's absolutely no earthworms. Uh huh. What's the question? Oh, okay. Well, earthworms are, uh, I guess you want to you see earthworms. Yeah. Okay, earthworms, unfortunately, like I was showing in this picture, earthworms are pretty high up there in the food web. Uh, you got to have a lot of organic matter if you want earthworms. If you don't have, if you don't have earthworms, it's because you don't have anything uh, for them to eat. Uh, you, you don't throw a potluck and then have nothing to eat and expect a big crowd to stay. You know, it's you gotta you gotta have something to eat or they're not gonna stay. So that's usually what the challenge is. If you start looking and then you need more, uh, uh, that's another thing too. So you can you can take your soil, you can get it sampled. They'll come back and they'll tell you you got five, six percent organic matter or whatever it is. But again, how much of that is biologically active organic matter? That means relatively fresh additions of organic matter which means compost or cover crops or green manures of some type or uh, you know, the plant residues from uh, some type of cash crop you might have had through there. You gotta have biologically active organic matter is what you need, not just organic matter. It's not good enough to have that five, six percent organic matter. Go ahead. How do you test for biologically active organic matter? Oh, that's a question that a lot of people with high degrees in universities are trying to answer. Um, really. Okay. The question was, how do you test for biologically active organic matter? The only laboratory out there that I know of, uh, I believe, was started by Elaine Ingram. It's in Corvallis, Oregon. It's called Earthworks. Um, they test, but they're usually testing microorganisms. I think that that test includes uh, what she would recommend, and there's a ton of debate about how to do it. Nitrogen, phosphorus, and, and organic matter testing and what will mineralize, right now that is a hot topic in the scientific community and what is to be expected, what is, you know, uh, reliable sources, what you can trust. You're really, you know, that's a real tough question to answer right now. Um, honestly, the only thing I can tell you is keep a good record of what you're putting into the ground. In other words, and introduce cover crops. Go ahead. Laboratory, Ward Laboratories. What's it called? W oh, Ward. Okay. They do biological soil tests. Uh, oh. They also do 
do a phospholipid analysis, trying okay. to total biomass of different microorganisms. So oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's just another option to consider. Okay. I, I haven't heard of, of that one. That was Ward, right? Yeah, Ward, Ward Laboratories? Ward Laboratories. Okay. And where is that out of? Uh, it might be Nebraska. Nebraska, maybe. Okay. Uh, next question up front. Um, a couple of years ago. I haven't personally done any research on that, so I don't have any questions that I can ans answer right now. Um, I can maybe, you can write that down and I can look into it, but I don't have any response for that right now. Where do you see just the frontier right now with science and understanding? Uh, with respect soil? to soil? Uh, right now, like I was sharing with you, the big thing is we have a lot of eutrophication because of nitrogen and phosphorus. I'll talk about you know what high phosphorus uh, amending the soils with excessive amounts of synthetic phosphorus does to the soil when I talk about the phosphorus cycle. And right now, the hot topic is figuring out, okay, how much nitrogen is going to mineralize from the soil? And the reason why they want to understand that is because far as farmers, we don't really know how much nitrogen to expect. Why? Because it's a very dynamic process. It's not a simple thing. Um, so that right now is probably the hot topic, uh, as well as trying to find uh, other, trying to isolate, almost every single antibiotic that's out there came from some sort of soil organism. Um, they're trying to find other soil organisms that they can get antibiotics out of, because we've, we've really messed that up. Um, I think everybody's pretty well informed about that, but uh, that's probably the two real hot topics in phosphorus as well, testing for phosphorus. There's a lot of debate on how to test for phosphorus. And I'll, uh, I'll share what, what my opinion is on that later. I should be in the beginner's class. <laughs> 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 it's okay. <laughs> uh, his question is, which, which bag of fertilizer to buy? And my question for you is, depends. It depends on a lot of stuff. I, I don't have a straight answer for you. You really got to know what's going on with your soil before I can tell you what you should buy. I'm sorry. That's the best answer I can give you right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, remember the uh, second commandment, uh, what tells us that, oh, okay, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. The Mittlier method, some of you guys are familiar with it, I'm sure, uh, just adding an awful lot of organic matter, and you keep adding it, and you keep adding it, and you keep adding it, and then I think he threw a few other things in there, and somehow he had some pretty good yields. Um, I don't remember all the hairy details, micronutrients, and I, I don't remember all the details on it, but... Um, <coughs> The Bible tells us in the second commandment that, the that God will pu punish the iniquities of the father to the third and the fourth generation. When we understand the way uh, organic matter breaks down, you'll see that it takes multiple years for it to break down. And when organic matter breaks down, that's really the other anion exchange capacity. I'll talk about that when we talk about that as we get into this later. Uh, essentially, whatever nutrients are in that plant. So those plants, that organic matter was grown somewhere, and that soil wasn't properly balanced, and it was deficient in certain things, and had excesses of certain things. Those deficiencies and excesses are going to be present in that crop that you're putting into the ground, whether it's your alfalfa pellets or hay bales or whatever that is. So those excesses and deficiencies are eventually going to build up in, in, in your soil if you're using the Mittlier method. Um, I've never done Mittlier method. Uh, I know with hydroponics, I can give you a lot of reasons why that won't work. And even just by the, with the vague understanding I have of that method, the problem is that you got to understand the chemistry, especially of phosphorus and calcium. They do not like to be in ionic states. They will react with something and they will form a bond and they will go sit somewhere. And th when they do that, they form usually appetite. And it's not available to plants. It comes out of the... Uh, a chemical labile into a uh, mineral, non-labile. And what that means is that you're taking a nutrient like phosphorus that was at some point available to you, 
And then uh, you combine it with that calcium you just put down to that limestone. Uh, they form a bond, calcium phosphate, which is also known as apatite. And uh, it's, non, uh, it's not plant available. It cannot be broken down by plant uh, exudates. Uh, most microbial exudates can't break it down either. And usually you got to turn it to fungus. Fungus has to break it down. If you're in any type of system where you're continually disturbing a soil, you're not going to have good fungal development. If you don't have those fungal spores, then how are you going to break that appetite down? I'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Uh, pretty much every, how calcium phosphate is, is like soft rock phosphate. So if you're adding soft rock phosphate, yes, but there's a portion of it that's available and a portion of it that's not. That goes back, you might have really good responses and the next person might not, but the thing is you have to understand how much overall phosphorus is in your soil and whether you're going to mineralize phosphorus or immobilize phosphorus. And what that means is that you're going to either make phosphorus available or phosphorus uh, not plant available based off of additions of, of calcium phosphate. Again, you know, all the systems are so different and complex that what worked for you may not work for everybody else, and I can't say why it worked for you. Yeah. Uh, but uh, worm castings have essentially a lot of nutrients in it that have been made available through the digestive system of worms. So what you're probably seeing is uh, an increase in nutrients uh, for your crop from the, uh, what is called fraz, essentially worm poop. Okay. Or worm manure, however you want to look at it. There seems to be different views on compost. Uh -huh. There's a lot of different... The biggest problem with... Com okay, the question is compost. A lot of different views. Wh what did you have? Well, it just seems like there's a lot... Um, <laughs> you don't know really what you're going to get. In terms yes. Again, that goes back to what I mentioned earlier, uh, the sins of the fathers. What, what, what was that? What was the parent material? What was the plant? What was the nutrition of that plant? and what will become available. But the biggest thing with phosphorus is that people try to manage nitrogen with, I'm sorry, compost. The biggest thing with compost is folks try to manage uh, nit their nitrogen with compost. And there is way more potass uh, I'm sorry, potassium and phosphorus in your compost than there is uh, nitrogen. And if you add too much, uh, too much compost, you'll get your phosphorus and your nitrogen too high. And eventually that'll begin to show an other problem. Not really, no. Question is, the soil has a pH of 8.1, and what is that doing to soil organisms? I have a whole bunch of slides on pH and soil organisms. We'll talk. See, the thing is, what is that doing to soil organisms? It's changing the genetic diversity of soil organisms. That's the short answer that I can give you. Now, what, what's the significance of that? Which organisms are there and which organisms are not is the important thing. And you're also changing the chemistry. So what nutrients are going to be made available and what nutrients are going to get tied up? That's another thing. Uh, so it's, it, that's a very complicated question. I can't answer that with a short answer except what I just gave you, and I hope that's good enough. Uh, I don't know that I would say it would automatic. Okay, the question is, is he's been testing his soil every year, and his organic matter is going down. He has been making uh, amendments uh, or a change. Or you've been adding amendments and trying to get the, the, I'm sorry, the chemistry balanced in your soil, and you're seeing a reduction in your organic matter. Okay, well, there's... There's a lot of variables here. One, laboratory variables. Two, where you actually tested. You can take a soil sample uh, and you can you know, divvy it up into two different bags and send it to two different labs and get two different responses that are totally conflicting. I have seen that a lot. Uh, laboratory testing is not perfect, so there's possibilities of problems there. Second is um, when you start to change the environment, you start, there's a lot of microorgan, I you guys are asking me questions that I'm going to answer when I make other presentations. So I just, I'm just going to hold off on answering that one. All right, let me, let me just share it in the future. We're running, uh, we're supposed to start again in three minutes, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to rest my voice for three minutes. You guys feel free to stand up, walk around, stretch yourself out, and then... Uh,
Oh, it's 9.30? I'm sorry. Okay, well then, um, okay, I guess I'll answer a couple of questions and we'll take a 15-minute break. Uh, unless you just want to, I'm okay, I just, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, well, okay, I'll answer a couple more questions. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I had the wrong time in my head. I got to write that time down. I'll answer a couple more questions back there. Yeah, okay, the question is, can you, is there a method for treating the soil that you can get it where you want it without soil testing? My, inst my instinct to tell you is no, but there, what, the old timers would tell you is indicator plants. Oh, now, what are indicator plants? Well, then you really got to study the botany because now you got to start understanding different plants and what environments they like and what environments they don't like. And then, you know, you plant certain species to try to figure out. Uh, an example of this is you want to know how much nitrogen you're mineralizing? Well, you plant three different things. One, you plant broccoli. That's a nitrogen-hungry plant. Two, you just plant any old plant like kale or whatever. And then three, you get something like rye or, uh, that, is real, that doesn't require much nitrogen, real low demand of nitrogen. So you plant all three of these kind of just spotty in different areas, and you watch them. If broccoli's doing great and so is everything else, and boy, you got a lot of nitrogen there, right? I mean, you haven't added any nitrogen. Uh, if broccoli's not doing great, but the other two are doing great, then you're probably all right. You're probably getting about 100 pounds of nitrogen per the acre. Now, if all of them aren't doing good, then you're not mineralizing any nitrogen and you're in trouble. You need to do something. So those, that's just a short synopsis of what indicator plants is. And there's a lot of different ways you can use them, but you gotta go, that's a whole other field you got to go study. Okay, yeah. one more question. Will you be explaining in the presentation what mineralizing nitrogen means? I sure will. The question was, uh, will I be ex uh, explaining what mineralizing nitrogen is? And the answer is yes. And to add to that answer, go to the Google Drive, and there's a whole bunch of information there you can read. And I think I posted a glossary there with terms like mineralizing and immobilizing and denitrifying and nitrifiers and all this other stuff that you've got to understand if you want to understand the way nitrogen moves in the soil. Okay. <coughs> right. One minute, one more question. Okay, the question is, um, any studies with trace minerals and their effects in plants? That's another area in soil science right now that's getting a lot of attention as we're trying to push more yields out of soils, um, especially with the growing population on the globally. Uh, yes, there is some research, uh, but a lot of it focuses on just a handful of different micronutrients and their effect. Um, and again, C90 is going to work for you in certain soils, and it's not going to work for you in other soils. So you've got to know where your sodium is if you're going to use that product and your potassium. Okay, okay um, and I don't have any, any, any uh, test or any uh, research that I can share with you for C90 or any of those products right now with me, I'm sorry. Okay, I think with that we'll uh, go ahead and close up. It's 9.16 already, I think we're done with time. We'll take a 15 minute break and we'll meet back together at 9.30. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.